Well, good morning. As I was sitting, listening, taking in all of the, the scripture for today, whew, there's a lot there, yeah? There's a lot there. Well, I hope that each of you have been enjoy, enjoying this series as much as I have out of Hebrews. It has been uh, massively enlightening for me. Um, and we've been so, so blessed to have so many different teachers among us who have shared in this series. Amen? It's been so wonderful, and I have been uh, just so blessed by the, we, as a community, to have so many powerful teachers among us is a great blessing, and, and we all benefit from it. So thank you. So today we're going to look at faith, and this is a huge topic. It's a huge, huge, huge topic, and I'm going to do my best to make it simple for us to understand. Um, because like many large topics, we can get caught up in the trappings of the topic and lose sight of what is important. And so we're going to start today off by covering uh, a couple definitions. And I've talked about some of these before because we're going to talk about hope, we're going to talk about biblical hope, we're going to talk about biblical faith, and what they look like, what they encompass. So hope from a like cultural standpoint, would be uh, commonly used as uh, a wish or wishful thinking. And in this concept of hope, the limitation of this would be, the, uh, would be confined to the strength of a person's desire, okay? So, so in this concept of hope of wish or wishful thinking, it is limited by the strength of an individual's desire, which is a pretty limiting factor, right? Okay? Now, biblical hope. This is, this is very, 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 very different. And so we need to, when we talk about hope, when we talk about hope in Scripture, when we talk about hope in Jesus, this is what it looks like. It's a confident expectation of what God has promised. Pretty straightforward. A confident expectation in what God has promised. And there's good news. It is only limited by God's faithfulness. And that's limitless. Yeah? Huge win. Now, something I'm going to say today, and, and you can disagree with me, and that's fine. Uh, this, is, this is how I have looked at, at hope, biblical hope. I see biblical hope. It seems to be included within the aspects of biblical faith. Okay, I, I would argue that it seems that biblical hope is included within certainly a substance of or a smaller piece of our faith. It's like faith in the future. And this is a lot of the type of faith that the author of Hebrews is talking about in uh, Hebrews 11. So let's define biblical faith because I believe biblical faith being a, a bigger umbrella because it's not confined to just the expectations of the promises that, that, that God has made. Not that that's a really huge confine here, folks, but it's not. And that's really cool because biblical hope is already this huge thing that gives us confidence to live in security of what God has promised. Amen? Glory be to God. 
But faith goes beyond this confidence concerning the future. Faith involves a trusting relationship with God. The trust may be future-oriented, but can be past. And like all relationships, it involves a walking trust or a present trust. An example of the past tense perspective of or how faith functions in the past tense would be the word says that Jesus died for us. He bore our sins and our response in faith is to say, yes, I trust this to be true. I trust Jesus and I believe him that he did it. Yeah. And then when I think about faith in the present tense, I think of Psalm 42, 5. And in this psalm, it uses the word hope. And I would say that this concept of hope in this psalm is, is nearly indistinguishable from faith. And it says this. Why are you downcast, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my, my salvation and my God. This hope in God in the midst of our trouble, I would argue, is a form of living faith in God in relationship. Out of faith or a trusting relationship with God, we are able to live in situations of every day and every moment. And then we get to the future tense. And I thought last week when Jane was sharing, she shared a beautiful illustration that that I think gives a glimpse of what the author of Hebrews pours into even further uh, today. And she said that an artist artist who envisions or or imagines what the artwork looks like, he has a visual idea of the completion of the work before it's done, and even though we can't see it. So he might be in the middle of painting it, but we don't see what the final work looks like, but he does. And Jane said, similarly, God has a city, a new creation, an everlasting kingdom, which he is drawing out for all of us to experience, and faith allows us to experience aspects of this reality to come today. Amen? I'll say that again, okay? Similarly, God has a, new, a city. It was, it was mentioned in Hebrews 11 today. There's a city, a new creation, an everlasting kingdom, which he is currently drawing out for all of us to experience. And faith allows us to experience the reality of what is to come today. Woohoo! That's awesome. That's awesome. On Thursday, I was chatting with uh, John, and I was just talking about how I wanted to finish my outline for my sermon uh, that afternoon, uh, and uh, he kind of poked at me and said, yeah, have fun finishing that Sunday morning. And I was like, nah, I got this. So I finished my outline, and then... There's been a whole bunch of stuff that's just been flooding my mind. As I've been thinking about this text and about God's faithfulness, it, it feels like God is just like boom, 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 hitting me with, with, uh, with images that play into this concept of faith. And so 
I was revising and revising. The problem is that I'm not great at having the, the stuff to write the revisions down. So, you know, the example is I woke up to give you a picture of how my mind looks. It was, I don't know, it was some night after Thursday. <laughs> uh, I can't remember. There you go. There's the first picture of my mind, you know. Uh, and I wake up, 5 a.m. I didn't want to be awake, but I was awake. And the first thought, I had to go to the bathroom, you know. I think we've all experienced this. Okay, I got to go to the bathroom. So there's the first thought. We got thought number one. Thought number two, wild. Man, I trust my wife. What a crazy thing to think after thinking, I've got to go pee. And leaving the bedroom, I'm thinking, man, I trust my wife. And then I started thinking about this, the nature of this trusting relationship with God and how much I trust my wife. And so then I was thinking about, you know, something that I stink at is illustrations. So maybe I've got an illustration here. Praise be to God. But God had a better plan. He's like, think deeper, man, think deeper. And so I said, okay, maybe my wife isn't the best illustration here. So then I thought about my relationship with my, my dad. You following me? Here's my, my brain. It's going. I'm peeing. Brain's going, you know. And, uh, and so I'll, oh, my, my relationship with my dad. And as I thought about the relationship with my dad, I thought, man, having a good parent is like experiencing a piece of what God offers, right? Because God, what's he got? He's got goodwill for us, right? He, he wants good for us. I can tell you, my dad might not know what's good for me all the time, but he wants it. He wants it. And, and as a child, before you become super self-aware and think that you're wicked smart, you know, you take this desire for good for you, and you just trust. I trusted my dad with everything, with everything. And it took a long time for me to get over that. <laughs> it took me a long, you know, but, but I did. I trusted my dad with everything. He was, to me, a pillar of what it meant to be a good person, to be a good man. Okay, so then my mind continues to go. Where's my mind take me? Well, to the Garden of Eden, of course, right? Why does it take me to the Garden of Eden? Because Adam and Eve's relationship with God was just like a child's, just like a child's. They knew that God had good for them and they trusted him implicitly, totally. And who shows up? Satan shows up. What does he attack? He attacks their trust in God. Is that not what he does today? It is. It is what he does today. And he attacks their trust in God in this beautiful, childlike relationship that Adam and Eve have with their father gets tainted by sin. Betrayal of trust. And when I thought about that, I thought about uh, the, the verse we all are familiar, the children come to Jesus and they go away and, and Jesus says, encourages the, the disciples, have faith like a child, faith like a child. And until I drew a line from my father to God the father, Adam and Eve in their relationship with God the father, 
man, this concept of having faith like a child took a whole new meaning to me. In Proverbs, it says this. I think it's Proverbs 4. I could be wrong. 4 or 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. Trust in the Lord. I don't know where I want to fit this in. This is the problem with things coming to me at different times. But our cultures shifted a lot, you know, as I was thinking about the, these pillars of faith in the Old Testament. The nature of relationship between human beings was, was m- much more dependent on trust at that time, interestingly enough. You know, you had to trust that this guy that had been, you know, baking bread his whole life, I guess, or, I mean, he might even not have been that. Let me think, a carpenter. You have to trust that the carpenter knows what he's doing. Well, he's spent his whole life doing it. You can't just go to the Internet and figure out if he did it right right? Or do it for yourself. And so the nature of your relationship with other people by default would encompass more trust. And as I thought about that a little bit, you know, my brain's still going. We have a really hard time with trust. Trust people. And I imagine that the, the outcome of having a really hard time with trust in just these types of relationships would certainly correlate to a hard time trusting a God who we believe has good for us. I'm going to get to the text. It'll happen. So a couple things I was thinking about as I was thinking about faith as we've gone down this tangent to understand this childlike faith, Adam and Eve in the garden, our relationship as children with parents who love and want good for us. There's a few things that came to mind from personal experience that I would like to warn us against because faith is trust in God, but faith is not a few things. And these are, again, my, my thoughts. So test them. But I would argue that faith is not directly tied to our feelings. I would argue faith is not directly tied to our feelings. We can feel a lot of things. We can feel good things. We can feel bad things. We can experience doubt. We can experience uncertainty. We often do. Spend some time reading the Psalms and you'll become well acquainted with the fact that faith transcends feelings. Amen? This is my other warning, and this one's maybe, maybe more challenging. I don't know. Oftentimes, we could ask ourselves, okay? Because we see promises in Scripture. Oftentimes, we could ask ourselves if we had more faith, if outcomes in seasons would have been different or be different. We think of verses like Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus, encouraging the disciples, says, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Wow, that's hard to wrap your mind around, right? It's hard for me to wrap my mind around. Okay. Now, I don't want to make light of what Jesus' words are saying here, so I won't. It's certain that the exhortation here is that we would have more faith. More faith is trusting, right, God the Father, like Jesus trusted God the Father. Or as we have discussed, oh, I'm reading things I'm saying, but... 
To take on the burden of outcomes is a position that will leave us likely under the weight of guilt and shame. Okay? I do believe that with faith, like a mustard seed, I can say to a mountain, if God wills it to move, that it will move. But I don't get up here to preach every Sunday and think, what if I prayed more going into this service? What if I prayed more? What if I prepared more? What if I got myself ready and humbled in a, in, in a deeper, more meaningful way? Would people's lives be changed? What if? That puts a lot of potential for me to take on guilt and shame that isn't mine to hold. I believe it's not a position conducive to a deep and trusting relationship with God whose promises are good for those who trust him. And we know that for those, this is Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his promises. And we studied in James, James 4, 15, it says this, if the Lord wills, he will live, uh, or we will live and do this or that. He is in control of the outcomes. We're very familiar with this concept. We've talked about it many, many times. We don't believe that we save people, do we? No, we don't. Who saves people? God saves people. Who is in control of the outcomes? God is in control of the outcomes. His control of outcomes and uh, his, he controls the outcomes and part of a faith relationship is trusting him to do just that. Trusting him to do just that. Finally, to put this type of pressure on yourself feels like a rejection of God's perfectly sufficient grace. In 2 Corinthians 12, 19, it says this. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. God does the heavy lifting. Isn't that a relief? Amen. Amen. That was my intro. All right, cool. Let's get into the text. So, a few things. I'm gonna just say a few, few things to get us through and I'm watching the time because I know it's been a minute, okay? So as we're looking at faith here, we look at verse 1, and this is kind of what we've been covering. We've been covering this concept of what is faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And I talked about faith being this foretaste of the hope that we have. When we have this hope, this conviction in what God has promised, we can taste some of that today by faith. In Hebrews, uh, Jesus expresses this himself. Hebrews 12, 2, the writer uh, says, Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. He could see what was ahead of him, and he was able to taste that as he endured the cross and despised the shame. And so 
should we? So now we get to the heroes of the faith. As I was thinking about this, I was like, man, I don't want to skip anybody. I'm going to get up there. They're going to be like, why didn't you talk about me, dude? You know? <laughs> and so, but, but what gave me, what gave, made me feel comfortable in it is that uh, the author of Hebrews himself skips a ton of people. And so he'll have more to answer for than me. So this portion is broken into chunks, or at least how I've broken it. I've broken it into chunks. And, uh, and I'm not going to be able to elaborate on everything because like verse 32 says, I ain't got the time. So, so we don't have time today to cover everything, but I would encourage you that if you would like to see the powerful ways that God has moved through believers with great faith and confidence and assurance in who he is, you should go through. You should look at these individuals. Go this week. Hit up a few of these names. Go back. Read their stories. Uh, it will be encouraging to you. So I broke this into a bunch of segments. The segments are before the flood. Okay, so that's Abel, Enoch, Noah. There's Father Abraham. There's faith near death. That's 20 through 22. There's Moses. That's verse 23 through 28. There's the people. And it concludes with Rahab, which is 29 through 31. And then there's 32 through 38, which is the honorable mentions, plus I don't have time. Um, and then uh, there's a conclusion dealing with the promise. So I'm going to try and cruise through some of these. The, there, is, there is relevance to this concept of the before flood examples. There's incredible relevance. One of the things I think of is this is a pre Abrahamic covenant. So we don't have the promises that Abraham had at this point. So they're operating in a, in a kind of a different relationship. Um, nonetheless, having incredible faith. Uh, Abel had faith based on what he gave. Enoch was faithful because God took him. And then Noah was faithful because in facing this crazy natural desire, uh, disaster, he hears from God and he goes, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm going to build an ark. And that brings us to Abraham. Abraham is given the most screen time in this, in this section. And that's for a number of reasons. One, I think he's an incredible example. There's a lot of written examples of him living out his faith in trust of what's to come. So that's piece one. Piece two Remember, the author's communicating with Jews, right? And uh, there is an incredible pride from the Jewish community that they are descended from Abraham. And so there's a lot of ties to or desires to, when you hear Abraham, suddenly it's like, boom, oh, this means something. And we see in Abraham that by faith, in verse 8, he left his stuff. By faith, in verse 9, he, he lives in a foreign land, in tents. And then in verse 10, his eyes weren't set on where he was living now, but on a city built by God. And this brings us to verse 13 through 16. And this is where we're going to pause for a second and look. These all died by faith. So this is verse 13. Not having received the things promised 
But having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If we had been thinking, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desired a better country, that is, a heaven. I, admi- I admire this perspective, and not only do I admire this perspective, but I want to more and more grasp the fact that I can taste that today. Don't you? Don't you? That seems like a game changer in how we live. It's easy to come and be Christians on Sunday, but when we leave church, if we can leave with a posture of surrender and trust in God, faith in God, right, in such a way that we can taste that this isn't our country, but the kingdom, the kingdom, that, that, that is our country, and part of that is here with us today. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to Jesus. Amen. As we were reading through this, uh, my wife Kim mentioned a, a text from uh, uh, The Last Battle, which is part of the, the Chronicles of Narnia, a C.S. Lewis book. And I'm going to read you this because I think this paints a beautiful, beautiful picture of what is to come or, or how this could potentially like be experienced. So here's the excerpt. It is as hard to explain how this sunlit land was different from the old Narnia, that would have been like the old earth, as it would be to tell you how the fruit, the fruits in that country tastes. Perhaps you will get some idea of it if you think like this. You may have been in a room in which there was a window that looked out on a lovely bay of a sea or a green valley that wound away among mountains. And and in the wall of the room on the opposite side of the window, there may have been a looking glass. And as you turn away from the window, you suddenly caught sight of that sea or that valley all over again in the looking glass. And the sea in the mirror or the valley in the mirror were in one sense just the same as the real ones. Yet at the same time, they were somehow different, deeper, more meaningful, more like places in a story. In a story you have never heard, but very much want to know. The difference between the old Narnia was like that. The new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower, every blade of grass looked as if it meant more. I can't describe it any better than that. If you ever get there, you will know what I mean. It was a unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stomped his right forehood, forehood, forehoof on the ground and neighed and then cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for my whole life, though I never knew it till now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that sometimes 
Uh, sometimes it looks a little like this. Come further up. Come further in. Isn't that beautiful? It's beautiful. And so as we live, we can taste and see that the Lord is good. We can taste and see that the kingdom that is being completed is good. We can taste and see that the city that is being prepared for us is good. And we can experience aspects of that through our faith. After talking about Abraham, the text moves on to verse 20 through 22, which deals with faith near death. Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. By faith, these men were able to face death while keeping their eyes fixed on the will of God and what was to come. And then in verse 23 through 28, we have Moses. Now Moses, from what I understand, was the at the pinnacle of Old Testament heroes for the Jewish people because he was the great lawgiver and the law was the central was central to the Jewish life and so for them he was at the top of the heroes of the Old Testament the emphasis of his actions of faith seemed to be focused on not being afraid of what others would or could do to him he also, by faith, rejects earthly riches, earthly riches and pursues the heavenly. This brings us to verse 29 through 31, which is the people and Rahab. I like that the people are included in this. In the first, when I was first reading it, I thought it was quite interesting because I, when I think about the Exodus and the people leaving Egypt, I don't think the first thought that comes to my mind is faithfulness. You know? We get, we get to look at this from ahead and, read, and have the whole picture so we see all the failings. Um, but I don't think of the Old Testament and go, man, those were faithful people, right? So it's cool that they're presented here in this text, I think for a number of reasons. But one of the things that it talks about the people here is crossing the Red Sea, and I think that gives us a bit of, uh, of, you know, I talked how faith isn't feelings, right? Right. I was talking to John earlier this week, and I said, you know, I think that if I took the group of you in this room, and God split the sea, and I said, all right, guys, let's go, and we all started walking, I'm pretty sure a large number of us would be terrified, right? And then you have, is the, you, then you have uh, the Israelites, and... And there's thousands of them. There must have been so many people absolutely terrified. But they believed. They had faith that God was good. And so they kept putting one foot in front of the other, looking at the walls of water, being like, Ooh, when is this all going to wind up bad? And then what I, what I like here is that there's, there's, a, there's a disconnection, right? Because the Egyptians didn't have faith. Right? They didn't have faith in God's goodness or the fact that he would keep the waters open for them. But something that they shared, which they shared with the Israelites, was courage. Right? I mean, you had to have some courage. And so this says, hey, faith and courage, not the same thing. Not the same thing. The Egyptians had courage. We know how that worked out. 
And then we have Rahab. And so we're closed, closing off this section, this list of people, these, these, these pillars, heroes of Old Testament faith, and the author chooses to end it with Rahab. And I go, man, that's significant. But I don't know why. <laughs> you know, so I'm digging, I'm reading like, I'm reading commentaries, I'm sitting with John and going, Man, I know this is significant, but nothing that I'm reading is helping me out here. And, uh, and so, uh, so John had an encouragement, and then Jane further encouraged me Saturday in that Rahab's a character very similar to, remember, we remember when Jesus stands and draws a line in the sand with the prostitute between the Pharisees and the fact that the Pharisees are going to stone or want to stone this prostitute, but Jesus says, though whichever one of you is without sin, cast the first stone. Right? You remember that? Rahab is 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 very similar to this character. And by faith, we're moving out of a stoning area, era, a stoning era to a salvation era. Era, and she stands as a testimony of, of, of something different. I think as we're reading this, she provides a relatability for all of us. I think Jesus made it clear that we're all, you know, we might not be literal prostitutes, but we're prostitutes in one way, in one capacity or another, right? Like, we all have sin and fall short of the glory of God, right? So she provides a bridge, someone very, very relatable for us. And there may be a lot more. So if any of you have more insight on this, I would personally love to hear about it. So please share. Please share. All right. We're getting close. Is everyone still awake with me here this morning? All right. We're awake. We're awake. We're going we're gonna to wrap this up. We're at the honorable mentions moment. Each of the above-mentioned characters' actions were made from a position of trust, allegiance to, and security in God. That's the by faith, right? We have Jesus, our great teacher, who by his actions shows us how to live in faith. We have that. We have this, right? We have this. This is wild. This is a wild, wild gift. And guess what? Nobody on that list had. They didn't have this. They didn't have much of anything besides faith. We've got a lot of information. A lot of information, which, Lord willing, is steering and guiding us and bringing us into a living that is embracing and trusting Jesus. But if all this information isn't doing that, it's not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Does that make sense? Are you with me? We have this. We have Jesus. Not only do we have Jesus, we have a written layout of a bunch of things that he did, which gives us a picture of how to live. How lovely. We think about Jesus as a, as a, as a, as a great individual, as a savior. You know, there's a lot of things we think about. You want to know what I just started thinking about this week? That dude was smart. Right? 
probably as smart as you get. I think, I think he was as smart as you get. Why? Well, because he was directly tied to the Father. He was so confident in, in who God was. It was he was daily committed to doing and, and living in the will of the Father. He knew what good living looked like. I'd love to say that I came to this conclusion by myself, but I had help from a friend. That friend's name is Dallas Willard. He wrote, wrote a book called The Divine Conspiracy. And in the second chapter, he says, right, uh, well, first he, says, he, he assumes this. Uh, Dallas Willard argues in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, that as we wrestle with the integration of life and faith in this era, a bridge between the two is rarely reached. He said, and right at the heart of this alienation lies an absence of Jesus, the teacher for uh, the teacher from our lives. Strangely, we seem prepared to learn how to live from almost anyone but him. We lose any sense of the difference between information and wisdom and act accordingly. We live in an information-rich time. If you want to know it, you can find it, or at least somebody's opinion of it right? And these thoughts can be great. They can be Christian influences. They can be non-Christian influences. And they can have really great ideas. But the question is, at the end of the day, do you have more faith in them or faith in God? When it comes to living well, is our faith in living by some other teacher's metric? Or is our faith in living in God's, God's metric? I'm not going to get to 39 and 40 today. I'm sorry. What I'll say about it is it talks about the promise. If we, if we look at 39, it talks about how uh, God didn't fulfill the promise. Okay? And the one clarity I want to bring there is he fulfilled a lot of promises. Right? But the promise is a distinct promise. And that distinct promise was being held out until God delivered us with Christ Jesus, through Christ Jesus, okay? That was the promise being withheld. And there are, when he talks about something better for us, we don't know, or at least nothing I could read tells me what that is. This is in verse 40, the nature of something better for us. Us being Christians seems to be uncertain. But what is important is that God is not... Uh, has not imparted it prematurely. We who are in Christ have a place in his great plan. And only together with us would they be made perfect refers to the fact that salvation is social. Okay? We get caught up a lot on the individual aspects of it, but salvation was bought for a people, God's people. And so it is social in nature. I'm gonna invite up the worship team. There may be a lot of questions that you have left, and I do have a lot more notes, and I'm not going to be able to cover any of that today because we're already doing uh, well on time. But what I did want to say is I was, as I was thinking about the lesson today, 
is if there's one thing I could have you take away. So, so I know this is a little dragged out. I need your attention for just a moment. Right up here. Perfect. Excellent. Thank you. All right. Hold fast by faith. Okay. Hold fast by faith. God is good. His promises are great. And his faithfulness is sure. Amen? Hold fast by faith. When I looked at the Old Testament heroes of the faith in this chapter, I summarized it like this. When facing natural disasters, hold fast by faith. When leaving what is familiar, hold fast by faith. When others may harm you, hold fast by faith. When possessions tempt you, hold fast by faith. When circumstances look hopeless, hold fast by faith. When you feel unworthy, hold fast by faith. When facing death, hold fast by faith. And the beauty of this, folks, is that in holding fast by faith, we're surrendering, our, surrendering ourselves in a trusting relationship in which we allow Christ to hold us fast. Amen. Thank you, Jesus.